This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown coming to you live on AMI-tv. I don't say live enough, but we are, in fact, live. Uh, Yesterday, we scratched the surface of the COP27 conference with Lawrence Gunther. But today, we're welcoming in journalist Arnold Kopecki to really explore some of the issues that came out of the UN Conference for Climate Change. And he joins us from Vancouver. Good morning, Arno. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Good morning, Alex. How are you? I'm doing very well. So one of the conversations at COP27 was around the commitment to keep warming below 1.5 degrees. How realistic is this as a target for countries to achieve? Yeah, that was a big uh, that was a big theme, especially early on in the discussions. Uh, a lot of people were saying we just got to let go. Others were saying no, we have to hold on. And depending who you ask, you'll get a different answer. Since you're asking me, um, I am of those who feel that it is no longer uh, really realistic to, to keep it to 1.5 degrees. We're already at 1.2, and currently burning more fossil fuels and other greenhouse gases than than ever before in human history. Uh, so just the weight of the inertia makes it seem uh, extremely unlikely. You can read The Economist, and there's a lot, there's reams of of, of high-minded uh, literature supporting what, what I'm just saying, which is not to say that we should give up by any means, uh, but to recognize that that ship has probably sailed and that should add urgency to the cause because, of course, every hundredth of a degree of warming uh, that you can forestall is uh, has massive real-world impact. So um, not to give up by any means. However, the, the UN, uh, this COP27, did agree to, to hold to 1.5 degrees as their goal. So officially, that's what we're still going for. Um, but it, it is looking, even if, you know, if they do surveys of the, of the scientists who are at, of the climate scientists who contribute to the, to the, to the, uh, the, the, the IPCC reports, and privately, most of them agree also that 1.5 degrees is increasingly unlikely and, and nearly impossible. It relies on things like carbon capture, um, and a lot of, of, of still unproven technology, as well as just an in- insanely fast scale down of fossil fuel infrastructure. So uh, I, I, I'm pretty skeptical that 1.5 is, is going to be achieved. Well, yeah. And as, as you mentioned, you know, we're already at 1.2 and it, it would co- it would have to force a massive change in what our current situation, our lifestyle our philosophy on all these topics to be to indeed and i do think that change is coming and it's going to reach a tipping point it's not going to be incremental the way we've seen it so far so i i'm not uh, one uh, to to just say oh we're we're screwed it's over give up at all uh, but i do think realism is, is healthy as well because you know if we if we sail past 1.5 degrees uh, we don't want People saying, "What you promised us that we were going to keep this?" Oh, I'm giving up. Like, no, no, it's it's going to be all right. Yeah. Um, but I, like I said, I think it should just add urgency to to the cause to to say, "Look, 1.5 is 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 no longer attainable." So let's 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 batten down the hatches. And another thing that did come out of this conference was the establishment of a loss and damage fund. And yeah. Can you tell me who who this is going to benefit and how significant is this? 
It seems pretty significant. So uh, I've never been to one of these conferences. Uh, I'm getting too old to go to Burning Man, so I'm hoping that one day I will. Um, but the noise coming out of these this COP27 from the developing nations uh, who form their own separate block, um, uh, they have been celebrating from the rooftops. This is something that developing nations, the poor countries, the low-lying uh, Pacific Island nations like the Marshall Islands, they have been... Uh, hollering for uh, a, this loss and damage fund for three decades now. Um, and what it is, is a fund from pay, paid into by wealthy nations like Canada, the US and Europe in particular, that would uh, pay for some of the damages of climate change, uh, which we are starting to see very dramatically ramp up. Uh, just this summer in Pakistan, a third of Pakistan underwater for to the tune of $40 billion is the most screaming example. Um, so this fund is something that uh, developing nations have been asking for for a long time. And this year at COP27, uh, over the course of a lot of drama over the course of the two weeks of the conference, uh, people said, yes, no, this time it's going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's going to, it's, oh, and it happened at the very end. They got it. And uh, it happened because the U.S. and the EU and Canada all finally uh, flipped our positions and agreed to do it. Um, so that is the great news. And I think, you know, the people that I follow who uh, are, are advocates for climate justice um, are really celebrating this. I think it's the big win. Um, there are still a lot of devils in details. The fund has been established. Uh, right now, it is mostly an empty fund still. Um, and, the, you know, the United Nations, uh, wealthier countries have a long history of not following through with pledges like this one. But it does seem like the infrastructure and 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 the weight of promises is going to lead to something next year. They're, I think over the course of this year now, they have to put money into the fund and make that money accessible to countries like Pakistan and, you know, hundreds of others, literally dozens of others at least, uh, who are going to need some of that money going forward. Absolutely. And as you mentioned, it's like these poorer countries, they have been experiencing the effects of climate change where, you know, some of these wealthier, more developed nations, they've skirted some of the, the, the major trends. So what about the use of fossil fuels, which is where, you know, these developed nations have really been able to grow and develop and, and get to the point where they are now? Like, has there been any conversations, any changes in the conversations around the use of fossil fuels? Yeah, that was probably the the maybe the more disappointing side of of the conference was that people were hoping, um, you know, climate activists were hoping that there would be a call to phase down the use of fossil fuels that countries would commit to that. Um, that was rejected. Um, that, you know, so there's an interesting. I mean, India uh, India was one of the people who called for that actually, which was interesting because a lot of uh, fossil fuel proponents, uh, including here in Canada, often like to point to countries like India and say, well, they're not going to get off fossil fuels anytime soon. Therefore, we have a responsibility to keep producing them so that they can develop and have the good life that we have. Uh, but when India itself uh, comes forward and, and sort of pretty much dares the United Nations uh, to commit to phasing out of fossil fuels, which would mean helping countries like India develop and deploy renewable energy to uh, develop along the lines that we have, uh, we we did not take that wager. Um, and Canada is in an interesting position there. You know, Stephen Guilbeault, our, finance, our, our environment minister, who was himself a climate activist for many years, most of his life, he was in the position of having to also say, no, we can't commit to phasing down fossil fuel production. 
Um, but his reason for that is that, you know, I have to come home to Canada and try to implement this, and fossil fuel production is under provincial jurisdiction. The federal government of Canada cannot tell Alberta to scale down fossil fuels. What they can do is tell Alberta that they have to reduce emissions, uh, because emissions are indeed under uh, federal jurisdiction, and Ottawa does have a mandate there that they can follow through. Stephen Giobo was very clear. He said, you know, every single thing we do on the climate file gets challenged in court. Uh, the carbon tax is the most obvious example. Every province in Canada, almost a minus two or three, including BC, where I live, uh, challenged this, has challenged the carbon tax in, in the Supreme Court. So Stephen Gilbo says, whatever promises we make, we have to be able to uh, defend them in court because that is what it's going to come to. And so Canada is focusing on emissions rather than production. And I think that's a similar story for a lot of the big oil producing nations. I mean, some of them don't care. Uh, you know, I think Saudi Arabia is pretty cynical about this. Uh, but I think a lot of other countries are, you know, it's just they, that's sort of the story of these of these climate conferences. Uh, don't expect them to save the world. I I'm a believer that the, these things are are a sign that the world is trying to improve its climate footprint. But at the same time, um, every one of these countries has to go back home and and sell whatever promises they make to the to their own electorate, and that really limits what they can actually do in, in concrete terms. Absolutely. And that tied into our, our daily poll question today, where I was asking people, you know, how do you feel about these international conferences? Do you feel they actually uh, yep. have a positive impact on energy and environmental policies back home? And, you know, I, I'm on the side, based with, with all the context you're saying, you know, it's like, yeah, it, on a federal level, you can you can want, uh, try to commit to these things, but as you say, it's it's all regulated provincially. You got to fight it in court. You got to be able to uphold these things and enact these these policies, which isn't always easy. Then. Yeah, it's easy to be cynical. I don't know. I, I think sometimes it's as much an indictment of the public, <laughs> of the yeah. of the voting, of the voting groups uh, who who really make it hard for a politician to do the right thing sometimes, especially in a country like Canada, where we are politically, culturally, economically so tied to fossil fuel production. It is really hard to 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 turn that momentum around. Uh, so I have a lot of sympathy for for uh, politicians who are trying to do the right thing, uh, but I also, you know, it's easy to be cynical about these about these UN climate conferences. Um, I, I see the sign that I see the fact that so many of you know pretty much every country in the world sends its leaders, like not just high level delegates, but you know most of our prime ministers and presidents are there um, at some point. I, I see the fact that that happens every year as a sign of genuine political will and effort and this you know it's a messy process i take a lot of hope from the fact that every year we get together and we hash this out and it's usually disappointing but progress is made absolutely now are there other uh, good uh, positive things that have uh, come out of this conference well you have to look pretty hard. I think that loss and damage thing was was the big one for for me. Uh, you know, I, we d definitely see a lot of gloomy headlines around. You know, we're sailing past all of our commitments, and and uh, you know, 1.5 degrees is probably lost right now. Uh, business as usual scenarios have humanity on track for something like two and between two to three degrees of warming by the end of the century, which it would be catastrophic, um, and that's that should frighten us all. Uh, but I, I also point out, um, as others have, that those business as usual scenarios used to have us sailing past four or five degrees by the end of the century. 
And so because of the explosion in renewable technology and the deployment of solar, you know, solar power is now the cleanest form of energy on Earth. It's cheaper than than fossil fuel. Uh, and there are more jobs in renewable sector than there are in fossil fuel. Uh, because of all this stuff, uh, we have cut the the forecast in half of how much warming we're, we're headed for and so that curve is still bending every year the curve gets better uh racing up against that of course is the fact that we are still producing more fossil fuel and burning more fossil fuel than ever so this race against time is what makes this such a really gripping time to be alive uh and it makes it a great story um uh, also a harrowing one uh, absolutely and you know this is this is a conversation. This is an issue that's not going away. It's only becoming more and more pressing as we continue to move forward. Um, I'm I'm sure we're going to be touching on this in the future, yeah. Arno, uh, quite a number of times. But we'll have to leave the conversation there. Thank you so much for for helping debrief the COP27 conference. It, it can always be a lot of information, a lot of. Uh, just detailed stuff, but you did a yeah, great job. Yeah, there's so it. much, and it's relentless, isn't it? But yep. uh, stay tuned. Like you say, uh, the story is uh, continuing to develop. <laughs> Thank you so much, Arno. That was a journalist, Arno Kopecki, who is also the author of Environmentalist Dilemma. You can follow him on Twitter at Arno underscore Kopecki. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider.